This is iFanboy Media Splode, episode two. iFanboy Media Explode number two. Is that how we say it? I don't even know. My name is Connor Kilpatrick. I'm here with Ron Richards. Hello. Josh Flanagan. What's up? And this is the show unlocked by the patrons over at patreon.com slash iFanboy. We hit the latest stretch goal. Last time it was a freebie. This was the this is the first official unlocked episode. So thanks to the patrons. You now get this show once a month. So thanks, guys. And somehow now I'm back in the regular podcasting saddle. So thanks for that. I think we're at reaching we're reaching our limit. Well, listen though, don't screw this up, Connor. And I've got a good thing going, <laughs> yeah. and it's like we just figured it out. And then so you're going to show up here and be like, oh blah blah. It's like it's 2011, but it's not. <laughs> if you want to hey, be a third Jamoke, you need to earn it. Oh, listen, I put in my time, my Jamoke time. I think I've got I've got Jamoke no. time in the bank. You're like Michael Jordan after he went to play baseball and then came back and had to be on the wall. I, I had to ch- change my number. Yeah, you're forty. You're forty-five now. So uh, this is the uh, monthly show in which we talk about things not related to comics, similar to our year in all media spectacular. And uh, last time we talked about streaming options for those who are quarantined, and then I don't remember what else we talked about, but we had fun. It's been a long month. So this month, we're going to start by talking, hey guys, what have you been streaming since last we spoke to everybody? What have you been partaking in while you've been quarantined? How exciting. I've actually been uh, enjoying the wonderful world of Hulu, not surprisingly. One of my favorites. Are you going to go through an entire streaming service? (laughs) No, no, but one of my my favorite shows uh, that I think I talked about in the All Media Show or at some point, the third season of Future Man uh, came out, and so we've been, we're two episodes in on that. I started the first episode of Devs, which I'm very excited about, which, by the way, reminds me, if you need a recommendation, folks, for something to watch, I don't know if we talked about it last time, but we should have. Halt and Catch Fire. You should just watch all those four seasons of that show. It's fantastic. Where is that? that on Hulu? Yeah, where is it? It was on Netflix. No, I, I, wherever it is. Just wherever Netflix. it is. It's on Netflix. I'm just saying because Devs is similar to Halt and Catch Fire and that it takes oh. place in the world of tech and that sort of thing. The Probably the show on Hulu that I've enjoyed the most has been High Fidelity, which you know is the, re, the, the remake based on the novel by Nick Hornby and a lot of people know the John Cusack movie. And this is, it's a weird hybrid remake of, of a adaptation of the book as well as a riff off of the movie, so to speak. I would love for us to do a deeper dive into it because I think we all watched it. Maybe we'll do that in a future episode, but uh, High Fidelity, strongly recommended. Very good. It was really good. Just wanted. I have been watching It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia again. I had watched, I think, the first eight seasons at some point, and then I was like, "That's enough for now." <laughs> and I, I like, I really loved it, but I got to the point where I had done all the seasons, and then a new one came, and I just went, "I gotta stop." It was, it was too much. I believe that was my recommendation last episode, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Thanks for taking so me up I, on it. I guess that took a, but see, yeah, I started with season nine. I don't remember what that was, fourteen or fifteen. You, you weren't wrong. Uh, I've been watching it nonstop, and I'm going through it, and it's like the best kind of cathartic belly laughs, you know, like, and it's, it's not, it's not like, it's like old comedy, but more so like, it's not trying to make anybody 
it, there's it's not it takes no prisoners i guess in that certain way and it's all I'm, encompassing. It is constant. I've been watching random episodes of it on like FX when I see it, and I, I just watched the gang buys a boat. Oh, the gang buys. <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that because the the, the the gang buys the boat. I think is like my pinnacle favorite episode of all of them. And it's funny because just just today, earlier today, I walked by a bakery in my neighborhood, which is closed because of all the coronavirus. But they have a sign on the window that says, "We will be closed temporarily due to the situation." <laughs> and in my head, I just hear that like Dennis saying, you know, like, dude, you know, it's the implication. <laughs> so, um, uh, I, oh, it's always sunny, so I, good. For whatever reason, I've I've laughed many times, but I think the, the thing that got me the worst, and I don't know why, is in the Lethal Weapon Four oh, episode. Yeah. And, and first of all, and there's stuff in there like, oh no, can you do that? And then they all switch characters, and that's very funny. But there's a bit where they've got the rashes. They're like, you, first of all, you got to understand this bug situation. And like everybody comes in, and they're just <laughs> scratching constantly. And like. I'm doing it now. It was very funny. Well, you get, you you finally got to the the genius. I think it was the first episode of that season, the the uh, '80s ski uh, ski mountain uh, episode. Yeah, I don't know if it, yeah, I don't know where it was in this. Game. I think that was I think that was, the, that was that a one. premiere. I think it was so, either a premiere or a finale. It was like it the, was either the first or last episode of a season. The moment that they panned over it and and Dean Cameron, who you may know is uh, one part of Chainsaw, Chainsaw. And Dave, yeah, from summer school. <laughs> I was like, oh no, because he was also in, I want to say Ski School. Ski I think school. he was yeah. in that movie too. I went, oh, they're going for it. You know, like, oh, they went for it so well. It was so good. Oh, man. <laughs> that, that was great. That's right. So, was great. So, between, so the, the two things, uh, it won't be a long thing, is those. And then every other moment I'm not sitting at a screen, I've been listening to my um, 66 hour uh, Robert Carroll, Bob Moses biography, The Power Broker. <laughs> you call him Bob. Bob Moses, come on! <laughs> I'm listening to the book. They could, that's why people refer to it. it is, I'm like, I don't know. It's a 1,300 page book, and I'm, I'm gonna say 15 percent through. It, it I, I was worried like it's gonna be too much. It won't be interesting. It's fucking riveting. <laughs> it is so good. Well, I think and we it knew that was so gonna happen. We all have a fascination with Robert Moses. I just, I, you know, I know that it's not him. It's that when there's that much information, and I, I know like Robert Caro is, is well known, but he scares me. The man has written like five thousand pages on LBJ, and he's not done. And I thought, oh, this is going to be tough. And right away, it, like fear allayed. It's it's you know, it's long, but it's readable, and it is it's wonderful. So. Well, let's be, let's be honest. It's, you're not reading it. Yeah. Well, you're listening to it. You're listening. Someone's to it. reading it. To yeah. Me. So it, it's listenable. Either way. Don't say you read a book, when though. It, when it comes to... There's not good terms for it, is what it is. No, there's not. Called, when, it comes to, when it comes to nonfiction, especially in audiobook form, it it really has to be good, or it's really easy to sort of like drift off and then like realize you missed a bunch of stuff. And that doesn't tend to happen, Yeah, and that's, why, that's definitely why I don't do audiobooks, because I, I will drift immediately. Yeah. yeah. So Ron and I every week watch The Good Fight, one of the best shows on TV, which is streaming so on CBS good. All Access. Although this week it took a, I don't know why Ron they premiered the season. Uh, by the way, I figured it out, Connor. So I'll just tell the people what happened was they, they aired the first two episodes and then they, they had to take a break because season three's post production happened in the midst of the shutdown. So they've all been working on it from their various homes across the country, and I just don't know why they started the season. I'll tell you why. We figured it out. Me and my wife were talking about it because she she's also a fan. The Good Fight, fantastic, great show. All the buses in New York City have promos with the premiere date. Mm-hmm. I, the, I believe the media campaign was booked with the premiere date before all this happened. So they couldn't – because your argument was just delay the premiere. Yeah. 
And like there was a ton of media, like I saw it's ads and all this sort of stuff all over New York City. Who knows what other other cities they were promoting it under? So my guess was that they were locked into that premiere date. And honestly, I when they they put out the video explaining the delay, I thought it was going to be a longer delay, and it got to the end of it. Like, so we'll be back next week, and I was like, oh, it's just a week. That's fine. I mean, we'll see if it has any other yeah. ripple effect. I, it's yeah. happened with other shows. Other shows I watch have had their schedules screwed up. It's, that's a whole other conversation. But that's a terrific show. The spinoff yep. of The Good Wife. Ron and I is one of our favorite shows of the last couple of years. I made a devil's bargain, and I'm watching Outlander on Netflix. <laughs> How did you make a devil's bargain? You, you know, you, you make compromises. You make concessions. All right. So we're on season three of that. And then uh, I'm a big fan of Bosch, which the sixth season just came out, and I just powered through that all last week. That's with the dude that was on The, the Good Wife. That yes, guy was, uh, yeah, awesome. yeah. Titus Welliver. It's a great mm-hmm. L.A. cop show. It features people from The the Wire. A lot of cast members from The Wire are in it. Uh, we're going to talk about David Simon in a second. But that's a good show. And then if I just need to fill like 20 minutes and I need to like zone out and not be stressed because all these shows are very intense, I just throw on Bob Ross from Netflix. I always have it ready to go. You're a big Bob Ross guy. I'm a big Bob Ross true. guy. true. And it's just real, real, real soothing. Real soothing. Much like this show. <laughs> so that's what we've been streaming. <laughs> Something else that we've been watching that we've all been obsessed with is the recently ended miniseries on HBO, The Plot Against America, which was a six-episode miniseries from David Simon and Ed Burns. And I think, I'm sure Josh will agree with me, we have to give Ed Burns here a lot of credit because he's very quiet, doesn't do press, doesn't have a Twitter account. David Simon's partner, David Simon yeah. is the very public, loud face of the franchises that they do and I think Ed Burns just very quietly in the background works and especially if you read that Wire book yeah. that we talked about on the All Media Show at the end of the last year Ed Burns is as important to these shows as, as David Simon is So, I th- Is this Brothers McMullen Ed Burns? No No Oh, okay. Different. He's an ex-cop from Baltimore who's like in his 70s. Yeah, Got he's it. in his 70s I did the math and I was like oh and he's still doing yeah he's Apparently for the Wire like he was the story guy like he was yeah, yeah, totally. and spin out the plot Vietnam veteran Murder, police, teacher—you know—award-winning television creator. Yeah. That's that's not nothing. Anyway, sorry. So this is based on the David Roth novel, *The Plot Against America*, which is an alternate. Philip, Philip Roth. Philip Roth. I don't know who David Roth is. Philip Roth. I've had wine. So that's an alternate history story about what would have happened if Charles Lindbergh had ran for president against Franklin Delano Roosevelt and defeated him, and ushered in a uh, wave of isolationist anti-Semitism across America. I don't know about you guys, but. Having this happen in parallel to the world, this show stressed me the fuck out every week. Well, yeah, that was one of the the complaints that we had this week was that it was just very intense and very stressful, and it was really kind of eerie that that Philip Roth's book, which was you know, which is over ten years old, right, in like two thousand four yeah. or whatever it was when it came yeah, out, you know, something like that. Really, in the in the in the vein of going backwards and doing alternate history. A lot of parallels to our reality now, and and it and of course they amp that up for the show or make it more pointed. Yeah, it's you know it's clear those connections you know that that, that you can make now. But yeah, definitely definitely hard not to uh, make the connection between what what you're watching and what we're, what we've gone through in the past few years. So I didn't. I don't think it's a criticism to say it was stressful because I just think it was because of no, all yeah, the things. Yeah. I, I it was. I thought it was incredible as basically everything David Simon and Ed Burns do. But to me, the only thing. That was kind of iffy about it was when I think of Damon Simon shows, I don't think of plot. I think mm-hmm. of mood and character and tapestry 
you know, The Wire wasn't really plot-driven. The Deuce wasn't really plot-driven. Uh, Treme wasn't really plot-driven. This is a miniseries, so it has to be plot-driven. You can't just sort of build your, your world for six seasons. This yeah. is more like Show Me a Hero that he did with um, uh, Poe Dameron. Oh, so good. Oscar Isaac. Yeah. That was our, I, I really enjoyed Show Me Hero. Show Me Hero was great. And it's actually really interesting. At first, because the, the first eh, two or three episodes, I, I wrestled with the time jumps. You know, so, you know, you watch an episode and basically each episode jumped about six months from the previous one. So you spend a lot of time trying to fill in the blanks of what happened and like catching up and seeing where, where everyone is in it. But by like halfway through, I was like, okay, cool. I get it. I see the, I see the drum beat. And now I'm in that rhythm but like it was definitely kind of shaking and show me a hero had a similar kind of time jump in between episodes uh to kind of speed up the story due to a short number of episodes what was interesting i think is that i thought it was a really slow burn and so you kind of don't notice the tension ramping up like the first couple of episodes like i don't know that there's really a lot to hold on to other than well, these actors are interesting. This yep. place is interesting and really that's when i was worried because i was like nothing's happening and we mm-hmm. only have four episodes left. That was my worry. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, and that was like so. I I remember seeing a like a pitch for that book like in Esquire a billion years ago, and instantly being like, oh, I want to read that. And I and I I got it and I read it pretty quickly. I didn't remember it all that well. Interestingly enough, in the novel, the characters, the main family's last name is Roth. So yeah, so yeah. Uh, Philip and the kid, Philip Levin is Philip Roth. Philip Roth. It's basically yeah. almost uh, alternate yes. alternate history autobiography, which. Wrap your head around that. Well, what's really interesting is that um, if you know history, and that's what a lot of these shows, if you watched For All Mankind on Apple Plus, you know, like there is a there's a part where you are neck and neck with real history, and then there's a moment when it splits, and that was in the I don't want to say the second episode. Of yeah, it was, the, it was the second. Yeah, the election. You know, when, yeah. yeah, so like it goes differently. Well, yeah, well, um, like when Lindbergh starts running, basically, because all that stuff, you know. Everything they said about what he did prior to that point, that's true. That all happened. He went to Germany. So did Henry Ford. You know, and and then to watch the run-up. And my wife and I spent a lot of time talking about Rabbi, uh, a long name, Bengelsdorf. Bengelsdorf. John Turturro, who was terrific. Yes, and how he... Like the point was like, is he aware of what he's doing? Is he going for power? And and eventually it becomes clear like he realized he made a massive. Well, that the, to me the moment of the entire but it took series way too long. was yes. that dinner party at the White House when oh, he, oh god he and his when fiance Winona Ryder go to, the, go to the state dinner which was celebrating uh, the Nazi defense minister. So first of all, seeing Nazi flags hanging in the White House was like I mean the, freaked me out. Joachim von Ribbentrop is a real person and. And, and a horrible person. He leads into the, the dinner telling his fiance, hey, I have the president's ear. They're all going to treat me with respect because they know I have his ear. She's worried about Ford because Ford is a very famous anti-Semite. He's like, don't worry about Ford. Ford has to be nice to me because he knows I have the president's ear. And then they, and they go into the party and they basically everyone snubs them but the first lady. The president basically snubs them. Ford is openly anti-Semitic to them. It was just like that scene where you can see the calculus in his mind change a little bit. And then I think it changes for good when he goes to that meeting about moving Jews out of the cities and they re- they're just totally steamroll him. Henry Ford is, yeah. it was brutal in, in that meeting. And that's the moment that. I think when he realizes he made a huge error. There's yeah. a bit in, I, I don't remember which episode is as we're getting towards like the last act, you know, where he's in the room, the meeting and he's showing the map and the different areas yeah. and one, like they have numbers. So, and as soon as he says that, 
my wife sitting next to me. She's like, I don't like this. Yeah, <laughs> because well, it, it was... really switches to well, because the whole time it's in the the thing in your mind is, uh, you know, are these people just projecting it? I mean, this is sort of what we do now, depending on how you're feeling. But you know, if you're right mind, like you're watching all the stuff in the news and going, oh, this isn't a good end, which is exactly what happens in the show, except it actually goes you know that one more step is the thing that we're all afraid of and i think that's what is so especially for, for people like josh and i especially who read a lot about world war ii or, or, or nazi germany the conversation i always have is at what point if, if you're living in berlin in 1937 or whatever when do you decide to leave you right know, at like, what point at what point is it like ooh, people, it's getting who, too, people who left here. survived people who didn't leave, didn't survive yeah. you know the, the jews and yeah. so and then, so what was powerful about this was that was the conversation but happening in hoboken or wherever they were living in, in, in newark Georgia. newark yeah it, was, it yeah. was when do we flee to canada oh shit it's too late and to see that happening in america in 1940s america was very powerful the yeah. conversations that i always have hypothetically you know playing out when at what point do you realize I can't fight for my country anymore. I gotta get out of here because I'm because we're they're gonna take us out. It was a very powerful show. I thought we stopped calling the show by name, and and it would I would say to my wife, I'm like, oh, do you want to watch Lindbergh hates the Jews? And that that became the subtitle of the show, just because it, it, it was so challenging to watch it happen and like you think about like not here you know and you yeah. think about and 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 knowing all the stuff that that Lindbergh said in real life up to that point I mean even FDR was quoted as saying I believe beyond anything that Charles Lindbergh is a Nazi right <laughs> like and like th- that it it just had to take one left turn and this is the kind of thing that can happen and to see it and what was what was really kind of you know and what was challenging about the the six episode format and the time jumps was like you know the you know the first episode was was, is Lindbergh going to run? The second episode was the election, you know, and then he he wins, and then from there on out, it's it's you know several years into his, you know, I think it, it makes it to the two years into his term, and just how the the erosion of what America stands for and what America is, and the the giving into the hate and all that sort of stuff. That's the parallels with getting comfortable. Was the yeah uh, exactly yeah empowering people who are angry. Right, and the thing was, is that the, the you know that that third, fourth, and fifth episode were really kind of laying the groundwork and and seeing you know kind of okay, well we can relate to that. We've seen this sort of stuff, but when it was that last episode, and again, I, I feel bad because I don't want to make the same assertion we made when we talked about McMillian. Well, no, actually, I said McMillian's could have been shorter. Yeah. I feel like this this could have been like an episode or two longer. Yes, because they felt like they packed a lot in that last episode, and, and it happens. really ended like that. Like all oh, of a sudden, it? Okay. it was over, and and it's the, I don't want to talk about the ending too much because people haven't but i remember not liking the ending of that and then when it came back again i went oh right because well from from what i read they they, and i didn't read the book and i'll I'll defer to you joshua they read but from what i I read the wikipedia entry about the book and it Mm -hmm. seems as if the ending in the book is much more definitive where the ending in this left it more open so Again, I read this forever ago, and you probably know more about it because of that. But I feel like the explanation for what happened was much more definitive. Uh, in was it definitive in both, and in the show, at least it was sort of there was a a level of doubt to it. Yes, exactly. You, you mean with the plane? The 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 like the their P tape. Uh, if you can if you can follow me, the reason why it happened. Oh right, yeah, no, exactly. And well, I, yeah, they, well, no, it seems like in the book they explain that off in the same way where it's yeah. it's it's in the words of – I think in the book it's Evelyn, Aunt Evelyn, not the rabbi, but in the show it was the rabbi who was giving the conspiracy theory as to why this all happened. I didn't mean that. I was that came out in the I news was, though. I mean, like, I, was, then, I mean that was, was the, the first lady gave that speech at the end. So basically – see, that's right. what's interesting is that basically they legitimized it and I was like that kind of feels like bullshit. 
Yeah, it super does. I was referring actually to the to the the uh, special election. It's um, very Simon and Burns to have the ending that was on that show. That they yeah. was like, I cannot imagine them going. FDR came in; it was all better. It was all fine, right? It was yeah. all okay. But I will say that the family has two kids, right? The older the the older son who goes to Kentucky, and if I hear the word Ma Winnie's one more time, I'm really going to lose it. And then they've got the younger boy who just like that kid, just like every time he's on screen, I just wanted to like my heart melted for him, you know? Like he was just like he did a really good job. But there was also the kid that lived downstairs from them, Saving Private Selden, who was Selden. on. He was one of the kids on John Mulaney's Sack Bunch Lunch oh. on Netflix, which I strongly recommend everyone to watch because it's awesome. So I was like, oh, hey, there's that kid, that goofy looking kid. And Selden was kind of this nagging, like he's the kid who lived downstairs. The Eleven family kid didn't really like him and all this stuff. He gets caught up in the story. They end up moving to Kentucky. The last episode and that phone call between Selden and the other – I mean, like literally, literally that shook me for days. Like I could not, you know, so, and just to spoiler to anyone who watches it, whatever, but so in the, in the displacement of Jews through this work program, Selden and his mother end up being moved to Kentucky. And then there's a lot of anti-Semitism rising and the mother gets killed by the Ku Klux Klan and leaving Selden alone. And so they've got to go to Kentucky to pick him up and bring him back. But there is just a harrowing phone call where this poor little kid who's like nine years old is calling the only adult that he knows back in New Jersey to say his mother hasn't come home. She's normally home. What do I do? And all this. And it was just like, it was harrowing. Mm-hmm. This is actually a good point to sort of pivot to. I thought for a lot of it, I think the cast was excellent just, just yeah. across yes. the board. I think for a lot of it, Zoe Kazan, who, who plays the mother, I don't, she feel like she didn't have a lot to do other than be like, we should go. Right. And then at that point though, once it becomes clear that she was right the whole time and she has like a different sort of weight to her. But then, then she does that scene on the phone and she's playing concerned, but trying to keep it light for the kid. And is also that's her own fears playing out and all those things at once. I was like, that is a hell of a job she's doing right there. Yep. You know, and that's it. it was just think of, uh, I, I don't, I didn't know most of the actors in this. I mean, like I know we know a writer and, and John Turturro, but Krumholtz. yeah, Krumholtz. Well, uh, no, Crumholtz is God, but you know, he just, yeah. he didn't have enough, by the way, he is just made to play an old <laughs> Jewish grocer owner yeah. in the 30s. I was like, and if you think about him from anything else he's done, and that's not him, but I believed it. I was like, when did he turn into this there, guy? And I was like, oh, he's acting. There wasn't enough Krumholtz in this, to be honest. There, there never is, though. That's the yeah. secret of Krumholtz. But I can't think of his name. Herman Levin, you know, yeah. the dad, like, who's, who's a little Morgan Oscar Isaac-y. Yeah, yeah, I was like, this guy's amazing. And then the, the nephew who, who went off to fight, you know, same thing. It was all these really interesting faces like casting like i haven't seen since band of brothers basically like these people who look like they were from this time and they putting you there in that place and seeing like their neighborhood which was really like this sort of really cool middle-class jewish neighborhood and you don't really see that in stuff very often you see you know like they have the beautiful bakery you tend to see like you know the slums or the shitty neighborhoods or whatever yep. and it's this you know this wonderful place that doesn't exist anymore for one reason or another, it actually doesn't. But just the whole uh, production design and everything of putting you in that time and place and then sidestepping reality, I thought was super impressive. It was a beautiful show, extremely well acted, really intense, unsettling. The final, whole final episode, I thought, was entirely unsettling and, and nail-biting yeah. the whole episode. If you haven't watched it, six episodes. It's on HBO Go or now if you have HBO. Every time David Simon and Ed Burns do a show, it's an event, and this was no slouch, even though I was a little worried with, after the first couple episodes. I should learn to not be worried, even though it happens every time. 
it ended up being so good and so riveting and like absolutely not cannot miss like to see where it went and and we're not even touching on the nephew and yep. the and and the the war and his role in it and his role in what happens to Lindbergh which I thought was handled brilliantly you know like and I guess that feeling of that last episode feeling packed in and feeling like they could have stretched it out more is also tied to the emotional reaction after this and that much like the deuce like I just wanted to get lost in this world for an hour and I I didn't want it really to end despite this being harrowing and difficult to deal with but it was very good i made the joke i think two or three episodes in that that i felt like the father was like what it must be for josh's family to live with him on a daily basis based on some of the things you post but you know but just like but th- but that but i, I don't and, do I don't, that and i don't, they don't even that, hear that part <laughs> i don't mean that as a dig i think i said that after the washington dc visit episode where he was like ranting at the lincoln memorial <laughs> but the thing is is that like that makes sense like when the world is going crazy around yeah. you how do you not yell at everyone and be like don't you see what's happening you know like and that's something that I think we all can relate to, and so that's why I think this this came out at the right time, whether you know intended they or not. Have known you know, that. Yeah. No, they couldn't have because how long have, this must have been development for years, right? I mean, I mean so. you could have said before, you know, given the political climate, given the way that sort of people feel like it would have fit in, but as everything has, I mean, you could listen to this whenever, but you're listening to it right now. We're all still in the middle of the quarantine pandemic thing, and you know, like that tension ramping yeah. up, it was like putting an amplifier on watching the show. Like you just because you've got so much tension and I mean, it was still really good and I enjoyed it. But there was times like, I don't know if I can handle this. (laughs) Well, I I often didn't watch it every week. I would let Mm -hmm. usually two episodes pile up and then watch them back to back. But it wasn't like like, I I, I can't do that right now Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, next week. But that Washington, D.C. episode was great because I kept waiting for the the guy to turn on them or to say something to make a remark. It just never happened. But I kept waiting for it. I was like, oh, the whole episode. That's a thing that. That David Simon shows do is that they will be waiting for, but they will be every once in a while they'll put in a person who's just a good person. Yeah, and it's such a relief. Oh God, yep. you know, it's just like oh thank God he's not a monster. <laughs> like everybody else is, but not this one guy. It was great. It was really, really, really great, and I'm very looking forward to see what they do next because God, they make such great television. But I, yeah. you're right, Ron. This was one where I was like, could this one be three seasons? Let's really explore this world. But I might have had a heart attack by the end of three seasons of the show. So let's move on to the main event of this episode, which I don't even remember the genesis of it, but uh, at some point, as far as I recall, Josh and I were doing our usual weekly nonsense on the show. There was an almost famous reference. Josh made a snide remark about the movie, and I went, whoa, what happened? You mean Josh the uh, contrarian? (laughs) And so we decided that if the media explode ever was enacted by the patrons, we would do an episode dedicated to the almost famous debate. And so here we are. Discussing Almost Famous, which is not a new film. It's 20 it's, years I believe, old. I believe it 20 is 20 years, years old. This is yeah, the 20th exactly. anniversary, yeah, yeah. Uh, written and directed by Cameron Crowe, which he did after he had the political capital from doing the huge hit Jerry Maguire. He was allowed to do any film he wanted to do, so he made an autobiography, basically, of when he was a teenage cub reporter for Rolling Stone. What's important for context here is to know that this film was a major flop. Yes, And huge, it did not make flop. money. I don't, it's, it may be his broken even by now. And that's important because it seems like a very oh his career has not been the same film. since no it broke Cameron Crowe's career which is weird though because I until I knew that I just think of his movies people of my ilk my age my generation you guys we're all pretty familiar with it and like this is let's let this is like I was gonna say like singles but it, yeah it is yeah. you know like which is also him that's crazy I had no idea the movie cost sixty million dollars to make and it made forty seven million uh, domestic oh. and internationally yeah no it was a huge flop it made its music budget back. 
Oh my no, God. the Ouija budget was three million from what I read, but it, it I, it's a joke. It didn't do well, and Cameron Crowe was a darling filmmaker before that, and he really mm-hmm. hasn't ever recovered. But this is not about Cameron Crowe. This is about Almost Famous, which stars Billy Crudup and Francis McDormand, Kate Hudson, Jason Lee, Patrick Fugit, Zoe Deschanel, Anna Paquin. Lot, lots of people in this film. Philip Seymour Hoffman, oh, yeah. Jimmy Fallon, Mark Maron. Lots of cameos, lots of, lots of stuff. Guy from uh, Modern Family. Playing the desk clerk. Stone. Uh, this, the, the, if you look at the cast of this, like Eric Stone uh, Street, yeah, watching, yeah, watching this again, and see, Nick Swardson's in it as a Bowie fan. Yeah. It becomes like you're like he's great at casting. Yeah, but but it's yes. also like a lot of people who went on to do other things, you know, like you know years later, and it was kind of fascinating to see that, you know, like yes, you can recognize Jimmy Fallon, but recognizing, you know, seeing not only like like Zoe Deschanel, which is like early in her career, you know, seeing Faruza Balk, who who was you know had been around for a while from there, but like then seeing Eric Stone Street and seeing Nick Swartzen and seeing other people like that. It's just like Rain Wilson as a, a Hunter S. Thompson, right? Which is no, like, this he's is not, it, it, he's not Hunter S. Thompson. Who was he? He's, he's David a, Felton. Yeah. Sorry. You're you right. Go. Yeah. Jay Baruchel. Yeah. You know, like a young, young Jay Baruchel, right? Marin, Mark Marin. Um, the, uh, music uh, video director of the most expensive videos of all time, Mark, Mark. Pellington. Yeah. Actually, no, he's not the. I always get him mixed up with the one from Ithaca, but Mark Pellington did like all the. Um... No, Mark Pellington went to Ithaca. No, yeah, who's the other one? Oh, wait, no, he did, but. Yeah. You're thinking of You're Fincher. Right. No, I was thinking there was another one who did like the Scream video and everything. I get the mixed. Doesn't matter. Pellington did all of like the grunge music, like Jeremy. The he per- did all yeah, the, the Pearl Jam videos. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, yeah. Also, yeah. just as an aside for our audience, the real Topeka kid played by Brian Vaughn, not Brian yeah. I saw that. I saw, I saw that, that too. That. Yeah, yep. and uh, uh, and then Jan Wenner in the taxi, like he was in there. I go, that's someone. <laughs> yes. So and Peter Frampton. Yes. And Mitch Hedberg in his yep. only. Yeah. This is a film about young kid uh, William Miller, who was a fictionalized version of Cameron Crowe, who is a writing prodigy. He sort of talks his way into a writing job. He writes for Cream with Lester Bangs, played by yep. uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's terrific. And ends up sort of talking his way onto a gig with Rolling Stone covering a band called Stillwater as they tour America. Stillwater being the band Billy Crudup as the guitar player and Jason Lee as Jeff Beebe, the lead singer, (laughs) who are a talented mid-level band struggling with success. And it's a it's a thing piece. It's a thing piece. (laughs) I like what we're talking about. So let's get into it. I love this fucking movie. It's great. I've watched it 20 times at least. I, it was one of the first Blu-rays I ever bought. That black cover Blu-ray with, with her face on it. Yep. I love it. I love everything about it. Jason Lee should have won 10 Oscars. Josh, why do you hate this movie? <laughs> That's an incorrect assessment. <laughs> I also, I love this movie, although I think there's several flaws with it. And when I watch it, what I think is interesting is that there's a lot of choices in it that I can talk about a lot and like watching it with me is annoying. It's my wife's favorite movie or one of, so she, she knows it front to back really, really well. So when we were watching through it, I just think that there's times where it doesn't quite know what it wants to be. And in, in a way it's like an experiment. What, what movie did you watch? So there's some, to- like uh, the thing that always bothered me, it bothered me when I saw it in the theater and it bothered me when I watched it again last night is that the, end of the emotional climax of the movie when they're in the plane and it's about to go down and they're all admitting everything that happened. You just hate that joke. 
I do hate that joke, but the thing is that it occurs at the absolute emotional climax of the movie, and that joke doesn't fit in with anything else that happened. And so it's like this big thumb that's sticking out there. And there's movies that I've seen where one moment kind of wrecks it in a way. Now, I've gotten over that when I was a kid. I used to say, oh, that was, that was stupid. I think that moment is stupid. My wife, whose favorite movie it is, also agrees with me. That bothers me. It happens a little earlier when Feruza Walk runs into a wall. Like, it's just out of place. Oh, that was a funny joke. Okay. I mean, like, I, people do that in New York all the time with the subway. Like, you're, you're, yeah. you're chasing along something and you don't see the pole and you run into it. It's not real life. It's a movie. Right, but that's so... But, like... You don't have to agree with my opinion. You're not I'm convincing not. me otherwise, uh, though. But, you're not, I just, but yeah, I don't, I don't I know think, where you're coming from that. I mean, I think I think that the, you're you're right that there are the Fruzabalk running into the wall is a little bit of slapsticky kind of thing. But it, it was the way I kind of see it was that a lot of this is that it's a boyhood fantasy yes, yes, his eyes. you know yeah. right and so so like there, there are touches of like really brutal realism and like kind of stuff and like real life kind of stuff but then there's also this just like ridiculous world like what what cracked me up was that or what i what i thought of is you know because it's hard not to you watch this and i remember watching it and then watching it again brought back all those memories because basically mm-hmm. it's a hybrid of crows experiences in the 70s with bands like the almond brothers and led zeppelin and all that sort of stuff and there are so there's stuff pulled into this movie that that really happened that like you can you yeah. know you, you, like you tie back to the reality of it and we then were trying to figure that out like well yeah like a, something would be weird and i go that must be a real thing yes it exactly fit otherwise yeah, yeah. no there's that's true. like the, like the whole the whole trading the groupies for 50 bucks in a case of beer that happened like that would like the, like all that stuff. Yeah. If you read if you read Hammer of the Gods, the book about Led Zeppelin, a lot of their insanity tour stuff that happened in America in the early seventies is you'll see the parallels with Almost Famous and see what they pulled from for that and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, like it's it's funny because it's this is really like if you wonder who Stillwater is, they are truly a mix of like taking the insanity that happened to Led Zeppelin on the road and applying it to a band like the Almond Brothers or Leonard, or Leonard Skinner, mm-hmm. who was an American band who like kind of came up and became more than what they. Should have been because of someone on in the band or whatnot. But so, regardless, I'm I'm getting away from my point. Is that you know? So you have all this stuff, realism stuff. But then there's the moment after the kid goes to the first show and hangs out with the band, and he's like, and he's saying goodbye to everybody as he's leaving, right? And it's yeah. just like this this hyper you know kind of hyper real kind of moment where like his head is swirling because he's 15 and he's just opened up to a, a new world, which is truly a a subculture of music and touring and bands which is it which you know you know it you know it was that way in the 70s it changed in the 80s changed in the 90s you know it's one of those things that has persisted and existed since the 50s um and there's no way to really handle that other than to have some ridiculous thing or some non-realistic thing bring you back you know, mm-hmm. so I actually do think that it's a conscious choice to throw in something that makes you snap back because you'll get too lost in the fantasy of it. So I think that's fair. I, I think the placement of that one thing really bothered me. I think in general, one of the I've I've got a couple of things that sort of that was a focal point for me for a while. It's not really such a big deal in the overall scheme of things, but I do think that it highlighted the fact that we spent all this time with the band and the rhythm section basically gets completely glossed over like as characters and they're there the whole time. So it's almost like a cheap gag that like the drummer just doesn't speak. And if you watch the extended edition, there's actually a couple of places where they, they just give a little more time to the fact that he's not talking about anything, which sort of makes that payoff work a little better. And it's okay. Like if the bass player is kind of one note or he's kind of a dullard, 
you know. Well, well, that, I mean that 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 that's in line. It's also really just a, <laughs> it's about the two guys, the two. Yeah. I know. You know there's a lot of bands into being. You don't I get really it, but need the drummer. But they are a band. There's all those people around there. Those guys are major characters, and we don't you, know anything so you're, about. So you're the you're the guy who wants to know more about John Paul Jones, and I and, am. and, and, I do. and enough enough of this Jimmy Page guy. Think about how many bands end up being the the lead guitarist versus the the lead singer, and you, you know the other guys are it, just. A it long doesn't ride. matter though, because if you're telling the story of those bands, it matters. I know that that Grant Hart and Bob Mould don't get along, oh but the but oh, Norton geez. there. What? It's not about the band. It's about it's about the kid. <laughs> Why and... are you telling me what the movie is when this is my interpretation of it? Right, we're disagreeing with you that it's I not know, about the band. You're telling me I'm wrong. Yes, which isn't the same thing as I don't think that's correct. It's and that's not the same thing. Those are interchangeable phrases. Here's the other thing. There's a couple of things that I don't think that I could put my finger on. I don't like Penny Lane. Yeah. She's annoying. Well, Penny Lane, I, I can see a lot of people having a little problem with her. My take is similar to Ron's in that this is from the kid's point of view. And if you're sure. a 15-year-old kid dealing with, with a woman like that, she's mm-hmm. going to come out weird in the recollection. Yeah. No, that's and also, true. I, just, I think she's playing a role. I know I do too. And the best bit of acting she did in it is at the very end, after he's, you know, like they resuscitated her and she's going to get on the plane, her makeup's off. She actually drops her coat on the ground, which is like super yeah. high end metaphor. And she talks like herself and everything changes about her. And from that point, I was like, okay, that was a rad bit of acting that she did there. She's playing yeah. the part she thinks she's supposed to be playing and it's well, annoying. Which, and then you remember that she's a kid. Yeah. And you're like, well, oh, that's. What, what's interesting is that it was funny because we were, we were, we were me and my wife re- watched it a couple of nights ago in preparation for this. And we were kind of dissecting it afterwards. We were talking about it, and and I was like, "Man, I'm like year 2000 when this comes out. Kate Hudson is just impossibly cute. Oh yeah, no, like totally. you come out of this. None of us came out of that movie not in love with her in that moment. And then you know, and like that sort of thing. And she goes, "Yeah, no, she's kind. It's kind of." manic pixie dream i, girl I, I looked that up and i was like right but in the 70s format like not the short hair yeah. quirky kind of thing garden state kind of uh natalie portman approach to it but this is the long flowing blonde hair 70s kind of you know so that sort of thing a different era version of it but she she's is, living in yeah. denial she's 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 yeah. elevating yes. herself as not a groupie when she's just a groupie and that's what's driven home yes. in the scene where she's traded to uh was it uh who was the band that uh humble uh, pie that's yeah humble peter frampton there's you know, when you meet her, she's like, oh, I'm not a groupie. I'm a Band-Aid. It's about the music. We help them with the songs. So we don't sleep with them. But all of that's a lie. Well, right. you know what's interesting is that Lindsay pointed out a scene there is um, – so right after that, they go to New York and uh, Russell gets with his girlfriend. Yeah. And Penny comes in and she's not supposed to be there. And she looks over at Russell and, and she's like – she gives like the face yep. like, really? You're going to do this? And Lindsay and I were like, well, why would she do that? And I was like, she's been deluding herself this whole time. Oh, yeah. She's and totally – and, and she's also court. 15 yeah. or yes, 16 yeah, or yeah. whatever she is. I think she's a great character who comes off as annoying because that's who she thinks she's supposed to be. And yeah, also, I annoying. think I think Ron's got that. Like as an adult, you look back and you're like, oh, what artifice! Like at 20, you're like, look at her belly. You know, like it's a whole other thing. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. So she is based on a real person. She's really yeah. based oh, yeah. on Penny Lane Trumbull, and and yeah, it was part of the the Flying Garter Girls, and and like that whole group of of uh, uh, groupies and stuff like that in the seventies. But like, it, <laughs> you're trying not to say it, but like I don't know another word. So yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and and again, read Hammer of the Gods by Led Zeppelin if you want to read stories about groupies and and all that sort of stuff. I want to say one more thing that I don't really like, and then I have a thousand things I can talk about that I do like. If that's well, well, we're avoiding the elephant in the room. Which is I don't know what that is. Jason Lee. So we, we need well, to get that. That's, that's an that's, entire he's topic. Great. No, he's no, 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 no. Let's. We, that's fine. I'm not yeah. talking about that. Okay. First time I saw it, there's two things I I don't 
I don't like Billy Crudup in this movie. What? Oh, I thought he's great. Oh my, oh my god. god. No, like I don't I don't the thing is is that like I get that there's like I don't know. Like he didn't come off to me as this rock god guy. Like every time he plays guitar, like it's not that interesting. He's not very good at miming guitar. I he doesn't feel like he has a couple of scenes where he really rises above, but he just never felt like a rock star to me because at the same time, you've got Jason Lee right over the side. Over the side, <laughs> there's a bit where they come onto the stage and he's playing the piano and singing at the same time. I was like, that guy's the star. I can't. I. Uh, so here's the thing. I. Th- I, th- I thought this is possibly one of Billy Crudup's finest roles. Yes. I think that he. <laughs> You know, that you you get the moment. It, it gets I like that he's, he's a dumbass. It, I don't know about that. It, it gets mentioned several times throughout the movie that he is better than the rest of the band. Yeah, he's like and, really, really talented as opposed to the band. Right, exactly. That, that and is, and, and, and you get this. It, it totally played out. And I think that the idea of him being the white whale for Patrick Fugit's character, for the for the main character, never getting the interview, and like that the and then the little off the record conversations they had, and really the story about the band. I mean, honestly, it's about the music, but it's also not about the music, and it's about the touring life and the the relationship of Penny Lane and like the hey man, you know, some stuff, you know, this is a different world out here, and we do, don't write about what's going on here because some people at home aren't going to understand, and like that conflict. And I thought he made that conflict real with that relationship, and when the girlfriend shows up in New York and that tension, it just worked on every level, and you know, and then when he calls Penny at the end of the movie and he wants to be real. And she she routes them to the kid's house, and like that's the perfect ending to the movie. And like I, you know, the kid has, has an idolization, clearly an idolization position with him. But there's also a respect and a kind of mentorship kind of thing that happened throughout the whole tour. I don't know. I just I think I I just I thought he was great, and it was. I fantastic. see it as yeah. the kid growing up and realizing that this is all artifice. Yes. To a certain extent, like you can be in love with the music. Philip Seymour Hoffman basically, you know, spells it out. Who is, the, by the way, that I don't know if he's the secret weapon of the movie, but between him and Jason Lee, like yeah. those are the best things in the movie where he just is like, you know, the, the part where you're not cool. And, you know, like and, and, and William says, I know it. And even when I think I am, I know it. And I was like, God, that was brilliant. That was just yeah. a, a wonderful bit. I feel like it's William, like there's the romance at the beginning. And as he goes on, he's like, these people are not okay. I am. No, but there's still idolization. I think the, the, sure. the mask is pulled back when he gets screwed over by the band with his article. He, he's yeah. never going to be the same after that, but he still idolizes them. He's still about, the I music. think he wasn't the same after the thing with happened. I think that was the moment for him. Everything. That, oh, that sure. was the slap in the face. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but then yeah. having the band screw him professionally was probably the, the real like, okay. <laughs> But then he still idolizes the music. He still he wants to talk to Russell about the music when he interviews him. Finally, right? It's that first yeah. question he ever well, got to ask: is, a, "What do you love about music?" Because he still loves the music, and so that's where they he'll yeah. never stop idolizing the music. And that's and right. I also and think this. I think yeah, the story the also like as, a, think, as a music lover and an intelligent person, you have to be able to do that. Yeah. And I think the story also tells the great adage that you really want to leave the party at, at 1 a.m., not at 5 a.m. <laughs> and if he had just left the tour when he meant to, so much stuff wouldn't have happened. You know, like, but he wouldn't have got the article. He wouldn't have got the cover story. And he right, no, he would have gotten the article. Yeah, he wouldn't have Penny would have died. Yeah, yeah, yeah Penny, Penny yeah, would have overdosed. So yeah. I don't know if that's – I was basically ordered to grow a mustache and find a way to grow long hair rewatching the movie. So, like, it's uh, – I. He looked great in that early 70s mustache, long hair look, Billy Crudup. That was Can cool. we relate just to how we often talk about comics from the early 2000s and how there's a special feeling when you go back? Watching this film and these actors in this time, I was like, they yeah. don't make movies like this anymore, at least in this, at this scale. 
It's like you know, seeing Jason Lee when he was on the cusp of, is he going to be a big star or not going to be a big star? And it never ends up happening for him. He did My Name is Earl, which was great, but he never really became who maybe we thought he might be early Zoe Deschanel, Billy Crudup, Francis McDormand. Like, I was like, oh, this was a great era of yeah, movies. Yeah, Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, so good. I had exactly that. I had exactly that thought about Jason Lee. I know I had it at the time because we had, you know, we'd known him from, and everybody, lots of people had known him from Mallrats or whatever. And it's instantly like, holy crap, that person is not like it. So when I get to this movie. This was his shot. I think this movie's a hit. He's probably a bigger star now. Yeah, my, yeah, my, you're right. My thought, well, there's, apparently there's a whole Scientology problem oh, angle well, to it or whatever, but as there always is. But, um, but my, my thing with, with Jason Lee in this film was that it is either his greatest role that he's gotten to play or the example of him being able to be himself the most If you're a star that doesn't matter and sometimes it's yeah. good and sometimes it's bad for, yeah. for him, it works. The way that he talks in this movie, the, like his incredible arrogance. There's this little bit where, he, where he's given William an interview and something happens in the back of the bus and William looks to the side and Jason hits him on the hand and then he starts to say, the same, you have to pay attention to me when I'm talking. And it's this, like he's just... Like he's cool rock star guy, but he's also super insecure. He's deeply insecure because Russell is more yeah. talented than he is. I love. Yeah. I, I, I. It's it's great. I don't yep. see. I don't know that. Well, that's what they tell us, but I don't know that they show us that. We only see them play for like thirty seconds in the. Also, I want the music to be better than it is because I don't think the music's great. I love so, the music. So here's a point. Here's a point about the music, which is funny because like it was a day or two after we watched the movie and we were we were we were just kind of talking about it. My wife wanted to know. She's like, she's like, you know, what I'm trying to wrap my head around is that like. How much, you know, and, you know, because she, you know, I, you know, while she's got a kind of a surface level of music, you know, the 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 depths that we've all gone into, Josh and I and Connor, to a certain extent as well, too. But like, you know, the, you know, knowing a bit more, she's like, how much of the early 90s Seattle scene was influenced by 70s music like this? Because <laughs> she's like, and she's like, because really, like, if you look at a band like Pearl Jam and I, I let her finish the thought, I just went. You know, Mike McCready played guitar on all these songs in the movie. And she's like, that makes sense. Okay, yeah. So, like, so she saw the connection yeah. between it, you know, and then I explained that, you know, the, the, how that how that drove it. I don't think it's bad music. I just think it's a little like when you watch, like, Studio 60 and you're like, the sketches aren't as interesting as what's going on around it. Like, yeah. and I don't know how you make music that is comes across that way in part in, you know, service of a fictional thing. But, right. like, I don't like the vocalist on the songs. I, like, I'm always like, just, I bet they could have got Jason Lee to sing it. Fever Dog is a great song. Also, it kind of plays into that they aren't a great band. Yeah, no, I, and I get that. that. That works, too. I like that whole thing where you're in the middle of us. You can't quite tell. But, like, maybe they're not that great. And I like that a lot. Yeah. I, like the, I mean, they say it, like the mid-level band, you know, struggling with their mediocrity. And, like, that's wonderful. And nobody knows it there. I, I think that's right. great. No, but Jason Lee's performance was terrific as Jeff Beebe because, as you said, he is he's a rock star. He should... I mean, he looks great. He's got the great hair. He's fit. He's got great clothes. He can sing, play the piano. But he's so insecure in the face of Russell. And he and Russell says at one point that they all grew up together. So they they've been doing this for however long. There's all these insecurities. There's all these issues. I thought they did a good job of inferring all of that without yes. showing it. That they're basically childhood friends who became famous in their 20s, and now there's all these underlying issues. The biggest one being Russell versus Jeff for stardom. And then the T-shirt happens. And as all the stuff you know is playing underneath. I thought it was terrific. Yeah, no, that was like two yeah. Jeff Beebe things. One, if you haven't ever look up video of Paul Rogers playing with Free, 
and you see it's exactly what Jason Lee was doing. Like it's yeah. it's crazy. So I I don't know if that's imitation or good acting, but the first time I was just watching like some video free and I was like, holy shit, he's moving exactly like Jason Lee at Almost Famous. So if you haven't check that out too. My favorite Jason Lee thing that I don't remember and I saw it last night was at one point near the end he's wearing a shirt with his own name and face. Yes, yes. <laughs> just, just, I, I didn't get that until this time yeah. either. Yeah. Oh my God! I was like, "That's funny as hell." Because he, he referred to that earlier in the movie. Because apparently that band started off as the Jeff Beebe band. Yeah. And yep. he and yeah. he said that he said he said it, 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 back when we were the Jeff Beebe band who did, when they were having one of those arguments and and that was such a great layering. And Connor, you're absolutely right. Is that you get the connection that these guys have been together for a while and that simmers and over the years. I mean, like hell, I think the three of us can understand Every that. Every band <laughs> at some point. <laughs> You know, it gets to that point where the money becomes an issue, the credit yeah. becomes an issue, the fame becomes an issue, the respect becomes an issue, and, you know, the Rolling Stones go on for 70 years, but every other band blows up, you know? Right. That joke did make me wince when Jimmy Fallon comes in and, and says, what, you think the Rolling yeah. Stones are still going to be a band in their 50s? And it's like, uh, Jimmy Fallon, by the way, his character was just an American version of Zeppelin's manager. Oh, the, um, the, 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 the Beatles, too. Yeah, Down Peter... No, Peter or something. I forget. Oh, 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 yeah, I know you mean. Yeah, but uh, even down to the plane and like pushing for them to, you know, tour via plane and that sort of thing. Peter Grant, that's who it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it was. I don't know. But but the, the the other angle that that why I love this movie when it came out in two thousand whatever is that is you know for you know those that know or don't know, but like you know fledgling minor career in college and early twenties as a music journalist. And there's a couple and it, the Philip Seymour Hoffman scenes talking to the kid were the best is like, yeah, it's cool. You get free records from the label and like that sort of thing. And like, you know, and like, yeah, and I used to, you know, like, I mean, Josh, you, you, you weren't into this stuff yet. But like in 1997, when the Descendants reunited and I was on their guest list because I was interviewing them, you know, an epitaph hooked me up like that feeling was one of the best feelings in the world because you feel like you're in it. And I mean, it I wasn't. It, it wasn't. Wait, what, what is the yeah, parallel yeah. here, Ron? What is the very what, heavy parallel? I was going to say the very heavy parallel wasn't until years later. That I'm like, oh no, I'm not in this at all. I'm just. I'm just a yeah. tool to keep this going. Right? No, I mean, yeah. what, we're, what are we doing here? Right. What has we been doing for the last 15 years, 20 years? You know. Right. Right. I think yeah. that that's exactly. That's interesting yeah. because you you do you go through the bit. You know, uh, there was a bit where Phil is Lester Banks is talking about. You know, these guys aren't your friends, and I yeah. went. Yeah, I wish somebody told me that at the beginning of my fanboy. Yes, I mean, and, exactly. and because we've been doing it long enough that we've come through the other side and now we can spot it and see it. And we know, you know, oh, some people are your friends. Others aren't. Others want something, you know, whichever. But to sort of see it in retrospect, I don't know that I paid attention to that part. That for me, I mean, you guys know, not, we don't get to do yeah. this. I was always reticent of making friends with the people we were covering yes. for, for these yeah. reasons. And I grew up in a newspaper family, so I had a sort of in my blood. But like, yeah. You know, most of the people you deal with, they want something from you because you're writing about them. Yeah, right. but it, but at the same time, it does work the other way. That I don't mean in a bad way. It's just that's just that's the transactional yeah, no, relationship of what we're no, doing here. Totally. But I think that there's also an element, and this has worked out for both me and and Ron, and even you to a certain extent, although probably not as much, is that you are people who kind of love the same thing, and you will make connections with people who love that thing. Yeah. You know, and and you get past that point where you know, like, oh, we don't really want anything from each other. We just you know, have a respect for what, you know, the same kind of stuff. And you do create friendships like that. But the more fame you're talking about when you're talking about like, you know, musicians, it's a whole different thing than comics. Yeah. But no, I mean, we, I mean, we have, but no, but yeah, but we have, I mean, we have, we can draw our parallels with comics. I mean, I could yes. rattle off a bunch of names where it's, where it's clear that there was a transaction happening, not a relationship, you know, and, that, and that's a lesson. And that's something, you know, that, yes. that I learned early on with music that we, we went through again with, with comics and, and it does any relationship between art 
and commerce in terms of what this is and journalism and criticism and all that sort of stuff is that those dynamics get in place and you want, you know, and, and you, you want to believe so you want to get into that room. I mean, think about, I mean, our parallel is, you know, the, the riot house in LA and you think about San Diego and being able to get into the party or get, go to the bar and that, all that sort of stuff. And it's, 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 it is kind of funny how, how those parallels and how it just doesn't change. And all the only thing that changes is the fashion and the music, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the stakes. I do want to get back to the, the film real quick and mention we haven't mentioned Frances McDormand, who is always great in everything. But I really her character here is terrific. I, oh, great. I yeah. agree with you, but I do have a question. This this came up a lot as I was watching it this time, and I've thought it before, but I think I was able to put voice to it now. There's a dichotomy about her that I don't understand. I think that she played the worried mother. I mean, obviously, beautifully well. But the thing at the beginning is that she's super against the rock and roll. Which lifestyle. is weird because she yeah. seems like she's kind of a hippie and she's smart and she's like – if you look at her – like she's dressed like a hippie or her, her classroom has a big peace flag and I'm like, would she really have been that against Simon and Garfunkel? Like it, it was weird to me. Well, well there, are, there are certainly people who grew up who weren't allowed to do – she could have been a church of yes. Scientologist. She weren't allowed to have birthday parties and do – I mean there's all kinds of ways she could have ended it up just, that it, way. And, and, but you also, you also get the sense that she's a, she's a parent in that time period and so she will have grown up in the more you know kind of um, 50s. restricted 50s and that sort of thing and bring that – you know like where, where you know where her daughter, her oldest daughter is, is in it, is in that you know and moves to San Francisco and all that sort of stuff. Clearly an intellectual though and had yeah. been in the college like it, it like it would have seemed like a liberal in all these other ways. It just it's interesting. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. The scene where she calls and talks to Russell mm. is incredible. Yes. It's incredible. It's an incredible scene. And also I loved every time she would call and one of the girls would answer the phone. Uh-huh. I keep looking at the cast list. It's just everyone yeah. was terrific in this movie. You know what I think my favorite moment in the entire movie is? It's just this bit that I always think of. And I can't, it's not a gif of it. But like when he comes home finally and he just well, goes past his mom and his sister and he gets to his bed and he goes, oh, and he falls in the bed. And every time I'm really tired and get to go to bed, I think of that. Oh, just falls in the bed. And I was like, oh, that's the best. It's like watching somebody get their back cracked. It's just, oh. <laughs> so, yeah, so um... – Clearly, Ron, Josh is the guy that Jeff Beebe needs to pick out in the audience and make him get off. <laughs> I, I hope that we're pretty clear that my level of appreciation and, and genuine enjoyment of this movie, for all of those reasons, is real. I'm like, you know, I love the film. I, I love watching it. I, I, none, of, none of that takes it away from me. I will watch it again tomorrow. Like, we had so much fun watching it just now. Right. And this doesn't underscore Josh's ability to nitpick even the things that he loves. I mean, that's how I love things sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> That's how I show my love. It really is a bummer these these kind of movies are not made anymore. You know, yeah. with I, this level of cast and budget and consideration. I like this kind of movie a lot, and I've always wanted more of them. You know, like you get a lot of music bios or something, but this is kind of a – whenever there's a movie like this, it's about a band or a tour or something like that, it's, it's often not very good. Like well, there are a lot of other times they try to do it, but this one – Well, that's – I mean, but that, this is the thing. Like I ended this movie, I'm like, oh, man, I kind of want to watch singles now. Yeah, you know, because a compliment for us is a compliment for you. Can we talk about how poor Mark Maron's character doesn't even have a name? Yeah, he's just angry promoter. Angry promoter. Well, he was nobody then. I mean, and he's great. I mean, he's actually really good. His scene, and and if you listen to his podcast, that's where the the opening line of his show comes from. Lock the gates comes. It's a clip from that film. That's ruined that scene for me, though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've heard it three thousand times. Just that line. Just that. (laughs) You want to buy a gate? (laughs) You want to buy a gate is a great line. 
And then they drive out, and he goes, you just bought a gate. And I was like, i got to cut that line. You don't need it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like everything that makes you want to be in a band in the 70s on the road. Yeah. You know, like, or just a band, honestly. Like, I mean, you're right, but like, this is the, that, that's what I want these movies to speak to me. It was a part of me that wished I was a touring band at some point. So that the, the era is one thing, but just that whole thing, which I think speaks to the thing I was talking about with the characterization of the band. You know, for, the, for, no one wants to hear about the old men talking about how it was better then, but you know, the 70s was almost the last pure era because in the 80s you had MTV came in and changed everything in terms of touring yeah. bands. That too, but we were also talking about the fact that when we were watching, I was like, well, right after this you know you get aids you get like back then yeah. they would have sex and do whatever and you'd take a pill and you'd clear up the syphilis or the gonorrhea or whatever and then then the coke comes well, in a- and a- they, yeah, aids coke we, and we, mtv we, changes you know music yeah. on the road we map this so after we watched it in the in part of the music discussion is that like you know we were discussing about how you get from this you know kind of style of rock in the early 70s to the hair metal of the eighties and you see the, you know, the emergence of Bowie and the dolls and, 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 and this more kind of theatrical T-Rex, this more kind of, you know, glam kind of performance. Alice Cooper comes in and, and gets a, a theatrical element to it, you know? And then of course, then, you know, with the rise of punk and, and, and no wave and things like that. And you get, you know, the, the, you know, you get television and, and talking heads and all this sort of stuff. And you get, you get this kind of East coast, West coast thing. And, and the East coast kind of moves away from, from that kind of style over substance and the West coast embraces style over substance. And that's how you get Molly crew and, and all that stuff, you know? And so it just, it's, it's fascinating to see how the progression of rock and roll from Elvis to really, you know, the early two thousands when it all starts to fade. Well, it's but, interesting know, is that if you're yeah. talking about 73, 74, that's when, and forgive me, it is all happening. Yeah. Like you're about to hit, like this thing is about to burst and you're about to hit the Ramones in a yep. year. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and Josh, actually, you just you inadvertently referenced something that I want a point I wanted to make. That is, if you ever question the importance of this movie, it all goes back to how it's tapped into our lexicon and our language of right. today. And now, and now we use you know gifs to illustrate things and stuff like that. And I gotta say, in my like top five arsenal of gifs to use, right there with Not Great Bob is it's all happening and Kate, with Kate Hudson. Whenever something's going on at work and like you know something you know going in in a direction that's exciting, whatever, I'll throw out the it's all happening gif you know my wife a couple of uh you know weeks before the wedding would send that to me and like that that one that moment is up there and that comes from that movie and that makes this movie somewhat immortal that's why i just want that one of him falling into the bed that's my version of that (laughs) yeah (laughs) yours is it's happening i'm like thank god it's over (laughs) all right so that's our almost famous debate we've been teasing it from i don't know josh has it been a year I mean, I don't have any sense of time, but I feel like it's been longer than that. I feel like we've been in quarantine for a year, so it must have been more than two years. Uh. (laughs) So there you go. The patrons finally unlocked it. This has been uh, our second episode of Media Explode. We also have our weekly Pick of the Week show with Josh and I. It's on that Ron's been coming on lately to talk about G.I. Joe while there's no comics. And, of course, we have our our bi-monthly Booksplode, Talksplode shows and our special editions. All that's happening at fanboy.com. And, of course, as we mentioned earlier, thanks to the patrons for unlocking Media Explode. That's over at patreon.com slash ifanboy. And uh, we'll be back next month. And who knows what we'll be talking about then. We don't know. <laughs> we knew this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And now we don't know what. So we'll have to find out something else to argue about. Um, but thanks to everyone who listened. And until next month, I'm Connor. I'm Ron. I'm Josh. Thank you.
incendiary? I'm incendiary too, man. I don't know if that's still my Twitter header. That was that for like three years. <laughs> that was a good the other, one. the other best part, the other best part of the movie is, it's, I think, it's uh, let's talk about the thing that nobody wants to say anything about. Is that your looks have become a problem? Yes, I love that, but it's, and it's just from out of nowhere, and he's 100 percent committed to it. It's all the grievances. They come out. Years of grievances. So good. We'll have ours later.